0: Before I hit record, you describe this as bizarro world. Expound.
1: Expound the people need to hear.
0: What do you mean by that? And we're living in a bizarro world.
1: Every single news article that I have read over the past week, the things that you have shared here just in the past half hour, has me shaking my head going, What <laughs> is how did we get what here? What is actually going <laughs> on? This is some alternate reality that we have ducked into that has all the stuff that looks exactly the same except for some detail has been changed and it's like what it's it's like, a rick and morty episode that's what I was going to say if rick and morty if that whole
0: thing was weird this is definitely not the regular old c134 it is not. Uh, universe we are we are off track somehow right
1: <laughs> so whoever is close to the reset button on the simulation hit that and hit it right now (laughs) because we need this thing reset (laughs) in the big way well
0: speaking of things being reset so this week's downbeat is coming from the one and only Shaquille O'Neal. Mm-hmm. So one of the stories that people have been tossing around that I wanted to get us started with today is the fact that Shaq is done with fame. He said he is done with y'all and the way y'all y'all treating me as a celebrity. This comes from uh, the uh, New York Post. Let's take a listen to what Shaq had to say. Celebrities
2: are crazy. I don't want to be in that category. They are. They're going
3: freaking insane. Don't call me that anymore. These people are out of their freaking mind. <laughs> How they treat people, what they do, what they say. That, that's never been me. I never want to be looked at like that. And, you know, all my life, you know, we, we uh, everyone probably gets stereotyped, but us celebrities, uh, we get stereotyped because most of them celebrities are out of their damn mind. Um, he said,
0: yeah. not only are the fans doing too much, but the other celebrities are doing a lot as well. He said, sitting in <laughs> front of his wall of wine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about what what you just heard from Shaquille O'Neal that he's he's
1: done being famous? Leave me alone. It's wild how you have um, second thoughts about your chosen path uh, once you get a little bit too far down it. Mm, do you think that's deep. do do you think that he, that it's possible to eject like
0: that? Not for someone like him because first of all basketball aside right, i think right. basketball is an aside at this point especially for the younger generation he has um been on on the commercials for uh the general's car insurance yeah. he has sold uh printer cartridges icy hot pizza he had a, a campaign with papa john's what else am i forgetting about so he has been out here right. he, is, he is making some money right. for somebody all these organizations that uh <laughs> well you know <laughs> I, maybe maybe the general is fine as <laughs> as an alumnus of of Papa's plantation of Papa Papa John's Pizza that that's one that's a little that's a little iffy for me but of course Shaquille O'Neal has never had to be an actual employee of Papa John so mm. that, that was that was that mm. was years ago you right. know that was that was between my degree and a job at, at one point, <laughs> but i had fun and and my little red mini hey people people love seeing me uh come up anyway uh so yes yeah, so, so shaquille o'neal has done a lot of that um but he is a significant figure aside again we said aside from the basketball but even aside from the advertisements he was a cultural figure for me as a kid i remember him as the uh, as the genie and i think it was called shazam 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 i mean that was a thing for me um if we want to tie this in with music Shaq rapped for a little bit do you remember that i do yeah <laughs> and I, m- maybe he doesn't want us to remember that but you know it happened <laughs> it did but, happen but but anyway it's just I, I i bring it up and i thought it was would be an interesting place for us to start today because for the past couple weeks maybe even for the past month something in each opus whether it's a piece of music we're talking about an article someone's opinion whatever has pointed toward getting away going somewhere where you don't have to talk where you're not famous where you're just another face in the crowd and we you know as as podcast and radio folks we feel that oftentimes there have been times these past couple weeks even I've been like who I wish I could just Uh, go to an island somewhere and just be another black person with locks and and nobody
1: (laughs) I just want to disappear backward into the hedgerow
0: but I critique that because when I hear Shaq speak along those lines where my mind goes to is well you've uh, had all of these riches and all of the things that come with that all the stressful spoils. fame you know yep. the spoils of the fame, fame but you don't want to give that up and I'm not sitting here dragging or reading Shaquille O'Neal but I'm just saying that's where my mind goes it's funny how you get all of the uh, privileges of something and when it's time to continue to pay the piper as mm-hmm. celebrities have to do it, it can be a lot so I we can wag our fingers in that way I
1: I would not wag anything in Shaq's direction
0: (laughs) but but (laughs) nope Um, but I think that counts for us as well. I'm sure there are people who would say, well, you would would say to you, I'm sure there, uh, you, you've, you've benefited from being on national radio and X, Y, and Z and, and da da da, But now you're saying you want to back up into the hedges. As soon, as soon as I find myself wagging my finger proverbially at Shaq in that way, I turn it around on myself and think, well, there, there've been a lot of privileges that I've celebrated as well, being in a spotlight that I haven't, that hasn't always been the most comfortable. I mean. What what do you think about that?
1: I think the same. And for me, it's about offering up the platform for somebody who is going to take it forward. Yeah, yeah. I I, I say I say it all the time, but my my time behind the mic is short. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. It's it's just getting time for new voices, different voices to take the conversation forward. But the challenge is, so many people want to
0: back up from those positions without thinking about creating a space to where it's safe for someone to carry the mantle we're getting to the spaces uh, the place especially in uh, in classical music where Many of us don't want to be in the space to make it better or carry the mantle because we're walking into a fucked up room of what papers, right. the proverbial papers thrown everywhere, the desk turned over. It's, it's like we have to make sure that we are cleaning up the office and, and making it nice for the next person before we start to talk about leaving it behind. We have to clean up our own mess that we've
1: been you know perpetuating over the course of our respective careers that is where i hope to go yeah is in that direction i'm not talking about leaving the business i'm Mm -hmm. talking about leaving the mic sure no do a different part of it
0: no i understand what you're saying but in leaving the mic that is its own space that has to be liberated enough for someone who can push it forward to feel like they can use the mic to say what we need to say or to make the changes we want to make in, in, in our, in our fields. Yeah, that, that's that's, that's be... really the part I'm saying. It, it's not fair. And, and I think about myself in this regard as well. I'm not just saying it at you, but I, I don't think it's fair for us to say, well, I'll back up from the mic and do something somewhere else. If the mic hasn't been liberated or stretched or changed enough for the next person to move the conversation forward. If a person has been talking about Mozart and Brahms and only that, you know, and I'm not saying you've done that, but if a person has only been focusing on that in that presentation space for 30 years, it is that much harder for the next person to come in and talk about some different music or some or some different perspective. So I still think there's some there's some responsibility there. That that's that's you know, the messy
1: that's, work that's happening right now.
0: Yeah, and it's not comfortable. It's it's hard work, but I feel like it's work that must be done before we can have the conversation of passing the baton. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's just sort of a cop out if if we aren't acknowledging that. There's there's work for us to do. But even so, what I what I often come back to when I, you know, again getting back to the idea of getting away and, and being out of the limelight. <laughs> I find myself at the center of a lot of rooms a lot of (laughs) limelight so I feel like there must be something in me and something in people like me to where no matter what it is we're always going to poke the bear so to speak, we're Mm -hmm. always going to try to uh, disobey the rules for the sake of lifting up someone else, some marginalized group or some marginalized uh, person even if that's in in the cafeteria at the tiki bar at whatever island that I imagine in my mind if somebody isn't being treated right in there. Oh, I'm I am going to do something about it because I just have a propensity to to cause trouble, I suppose. I can't I can't stay out of it. So, let's let's go ahead and, and get into into this week's trouble. Scott Blankenship, mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. is Triloquy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Opus 118 of the Triloquy Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. To the returning listeners, thank you for helping this audience and this idea and this initiative grow week after week. We really appreciate you. Thank you for your continued support for new folks or semi-new people. Thank you so much for being here. Triloquy is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and lifts it out of the ivory tower that has been built around it. We talk about Western classical music and other classical music connected to the world, connected to opinion, all for the sake of anti-racism and decolonizing the phrase classical music. If you'd like more information on the Triloquy podcast or if you want to check out past opuses, just check out the website, Triloquy.org. You can also donate to Triloquy there at Triloquy.org. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from the Shuttleworth Foundation. The Shuttleworth Foundation funds individuals who are unafraid to reimagine the world and the way we live in it. More information there at Shuttleworth Worth Foundation.org. This week, I also want to give a shout out and a thank you to Art Change Us, their website is artsinachangingamerica.org. I had the opportunity this week to um, be featured with them and to explore dismantling eugenics through our respective anti-racist practices and work. A a really interesting intersection there when we talk about purposeful and intentional desirability in uh, reproduction, how that bleeds over into science and to journalism and, you guessed it, music Mm. and the arts. So, you know, really interesting conversation there. So I'll have a link uh, uh, to artsinachangingamerica.org in the description of this. Thanks to everyone over there to supporting the work. I also wanted to quickly say before we get into the first movement, if you have not done so and you're on Facebook, go to the Triloquy Facebook page and hit that like and follow button. Facebook is is, is giving me some nonsense that if I have time, I'll speak to in the final movement of this opus. But for now, let's get into movement one. Alrighty Scott. Well, I got to come back with a natural for folks who don't know, we add a natural to things. If we want to continue to speak to something that we were speaking to or highlighting in a previous opus. So last week in the Triloquy, we ended uh, with my cousin out the United States. uh As far as what was going on at the southern border with all the Haitians Mm -hmm. uh, down there seeking uh, refuge and and uh, looking for asylum in the United States. Well, not long after we recorded and as I was... um, uh, touching stuff up and getting ready to upload i came across the image that i ended up using for the opus last week the image of this border patrol agent on a horse using a rope like a lasso or a whip or whatever the reins yeah. round rounding up these haitians who are seeking safety and, and seeking a, a place to go i really need to you know give it more than just the than the natural i mean it gets a flat and uh, quite obviously it gets the buzzer the problematic buzzer i mean the historical implications of white men on horses using anything close to a whip or anything that resembles it in any proximity to somebody black i mean just especially when you talk about the united states what kind of person what kind of twisted individual will saddle a horse and do that, understanding the history of this country. That is so maddening to see that image because it just proves to me that white folks, a a number, a large number of white folks just do not care. So my first question is, what will it take for us societally to erase the quote unquote conservative or even Republican facade of straight up American racism a complete lack of empathy for a person's life or for people's lives fueled by a hate of black skin that is what we're dealing with Mm -hmm. and we will never hear that from the most so-called left-leaning or the most progressive of news sources out there reporting on this stuff and showing the country these images and and giving us this information what what do you think scott is going to take for us to move the conversation there we can talk about Oh, well, um, th- this is, uh, I-, I don't even know how to, how to say what I'm trying to say. Like yeah. you- you'll, you'll hear people talk about, well, I'm, I'm all for America first, or I'm, I'm all for protecting our borders and X, Y, and Z. That's the language, but it's a dog whistle for, I don't want these black folks. I don't want these Brown folks in our country c- coming across. So what do you think it's going to take for us to start to speak more
1: frankly? on this subject and really name the racism for what it is can i ask one question before that okay you said that you didn't run across that image until you were putting things together to post that opus right how hard do you avoid looking at news honestly
0: for i don't know for the last Four months minus the last about two and a half weeks, I didn't watch any cable news mm-hmm. because there was uh, there was already enough for me to do. I had a lot on my plate anyway. So it's not like I have an hour to just sit in front of the TV. But I but if I was going to watch some TV, the uh, the news cable news or otherwise was not going was to not be it. it. Now, I'll, I will say in the past couple weeks when I've come in here into the studio in the mornings to get started on work, I'll put it on CNN and mute it. So if something crazy, like real crazy is happening, right. I, I see be... it. And it's in my, it's, mm-hmm. it's in my, it's in my eyesight. And that's actually how I came across the image. I was like, what in the world do we...? you know? I didn't know if they were shooting a new movie or, <laughs> right. or right. I shouldn't laugh, but like, so I unmuted the TV and heard this story and I just could not believe it. That, I... that, that's how I got
1: there. Yeah. I was just curious because for me, that image was inescapable. Yeah. I saw that everywhere, everywhere and early. Uh, in in the day, as we know. were talking about it last week, I had already seen it. Oh, see, I hadn't. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, wow. I wish you'd have brought it up. Well, uh, we're, we're talking about it now. But anyway, back to the original question: yeah. What's 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 going to get us away from the dog whistling and just naming what we're fighting against? Na- n- people naming what they're standing in solidly. This racism. How how can we inspire that part of the of the discourse?
1: I also wanted to say that. Um, There were no news outlets that I looked at that were propping that up as okay. So the administration's taking heat from all sides uh, for that. I I don't know what that's going to mean. Sure, But as far as um, what more can you do to convince somebody of it? If you show them the footage, okay, so we're looking at it right now. There's some footage in that yep. story right there. We've seen the pictures. How do you deny it? And if you ask me, the people who are all for protecting the borders, the hard riders, the people who think that white people should be in America, uh, why didn't they applaud that? <laughs> well, they they do just you know in the in the comforts of their home and around the dinner table, you know, but. Yeah, the administration gets attacked from that vantage point too. The the people who are the hardliners on the border. Uh, what is it going to take? I,
0: where I want the conversation to go, I want to be. I want my opposition to be racists. Who understand that they are racists. Mm. I don't want the opposition to be people who don't want to be tread on or people who are are patriots or people who love America, because all of that is language that just sheaths the truth, the, the root of the issue. So I'm trying to figure out how we can get these problematic white people to say, look, I don't want those blankers from Haiti in this country and and that's just that. If we can if we can just speak in that plain way, I think that is actually going to be more of a step forward because Probably. we'll stop pretending that we're doing something that we're not doing. Probably. Okay? And then on top of that, I came across this article I'm reading from uh, borderreport.com which would tell you automatically this is problematic. The uh the headline is Governor Greg Abbott vows to hire border patrol agents if, Bi- if Biden fires Them. Um, Texas Governor Greg Abbott promised to hire the Border Patrol agents on horseback who received backlash after a video of the agents using their split reins to control their horses in Del Rio. The video and pictures led to accusations that the agents were quote whipping migrants or attempting to threaten those migrants look like again like i'm saying all of this dog whistle ass uh, conversation and and discourse what do you mean attempt uh attempting to threaten them oh if you see right. somebody charging you uh, whipping around or, or flailing around a rope or whatever it is. And you have been traveling across water and land after dealing with the assassination of your president and an earthquake, yeah. you, you want to sit down. Okay. And you're doing everything you can to find peace and asylum. And some, and some white man is charging you on, on horseback. What do you mean attempting to intimidate? That's what I'm talking about. We, we have to stop using
1: all of this bullshit language that is it's just plausible. lightly yeah. saying
0: what, we, what, what is obvious to me and to, and to every other black person.
1: The video, what does it say? The video and pictures led to accusations of the ancient H&M whipping migrants attempting to threaten those migrants. Okay. So that's the quote that you just talked about. Yeah. Um, accusations. <laughs> um, they have, they have picture and video of the guy doing it. Anyway. Um, how should. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Looping we're, it back around right. to the
0: arts. How should arts organizations respond to this, in your opinion, and 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 arts organizations um, across the board? You know, radio, opera house, symphony hall, um, music school. Is this something that you feel like should remain separate? Do you think there is an appropriate way for those sorts of institutions to speak to
1: and address this issue? What are your thoughts there? Speaking out about it. Yeah, in either their online presence or before the concert starts or something, program music to speak to it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, you know, we we can do this all across the country, but especially in those regions being affected, you know. So there's got to be a there's got to be a Texas uh, orchestra or chamber group or something that can put something together to. <laughs> Yeah, because Speak I'm going
0: to it. Because I'm gonna say it. I mean, across the country and around the world, but especially in Texas, if there's any arts organization down there that does not have this front and center, I'm just going to, I have no reason to assume that you aren't complicit in this and you're completely okay with it. Because if, as we have laid out on this podcast over and over again, no response is a response. That is definitely a response, especially if this is something in
1: your backyard. So, but really though. Just programming a concert to it or making a statement or something like that, is that's not going to be enough. Would it like a, a, maybe a fundraiser concert or some sort of an awareness uh, nothing, campaign? What, yeah. do, what do you think that what, what might it look like?
0: Uh, nothing is ever going to be enough if we if we want to boil it down to that, because if the let's say the Houston Symphony raises a million dollars, OK, there are a lot of people who are not going to be uh, uh, served. With just a million dollars. So, you know, there there will always be more work to do. So I feel like we can't scoot away from the work in an effort to not be performative because, right. you know, the, 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 it gets really murky. But I don't know. My idea is that just raising awareness, you know, is very much multifold. So if, if when I'm thinking in my uh, radio programming mind, programming Haitian music, even in the most, you know, I'm playing it safe way because, of course, I wouldn't. But if, if if a host or a presenter just feels completely uncomfortable addressing it, even having the Haitian music there makes it, it assures the fact that your audience is thinking about that country and that culture and hopefully those people. And then moreover, the people at the southern border of that culture and mm-hmm. of that heritage and how that is a, a contemporary challenge that must be addressed. So to I don't know. Like, I I don't want to say F you to the whole state of Texas, because that that thing about the government or governor coming out and being like, well, I'm gonna make sure they have a job. That is that is something else. But like I said, when we were a few weeks ago, when we were talking about the uh, reproductive rights and Mm -hmm. all that down in Mm -hmm. Texas, there's no neutral there there is just no neutral and you have to do something with your position of power or otherwise to make sure that you're raising some sort of awareness here you know mm. so uh, on, on on this issue and there's always issues but this is one that just really speaks to um a lack again a lack of empathy when it comes to the historical narrative of what we saw the contemporary idea of the united states uh being comfortable being the world police but not the world's caretaker uh and 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 we have the ability to speak to it through our art and not only the ability but um the responsibility all right we're uh, i'll I'll post all that stuff in the um in the description for y'all to look at but we're gonna transition out of this accidental with a piece of music by a Haitian composer we featured a Haitian composer named Julio hassin before uh, mm-hmm. a couple times uh, I, I was actually listening to another um, Haitian composer that I learned about earlier this week um, the late Jean Rudy Perrault. and uh, he he actually has a piece in his catalog appropriately enough titled exodus it's a piece of music for string quartet so this is the end of the third movement the third movement titled hope Exodus for string quartet by Jean John Rudy Perrault. another one of those empty hall performances there that uh, those are members of the uh, Philadelphia Orchestra the uh, the video uh, was recorded the performance was recorded back in uh, February February 2021 and when you when you think about the idea of Exodus especially with a movement subtitled Hope you might Assume that it's going to be something sort of ethereal, maybe even something smooth. But the agitato we heard in that performance, the agitated sound, I think is another great opportunity, again, in, con- in the context even of just the music to get your audiences to think about the issue that's mm. there. I could definitely mm. do something with that. You sure, know, so sure. anyway, anyway, let's um, let's let, let's not ignore this. Let's not pretend that this thing, it does not exist. A and let's not pretend that this isn't just good old fashioned white folks hating black folks here on this American soul in these so-called United States. All right. Well, speaking, Scott, uh, you know, I spoke to. Uh, orchestras and other performing arts institutions using their resources to do what they can for good. You um, have some folks who are using their resources to do
1: something. They're doing something. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Take it away. Uh, I would like to give this a flat. (coughs) And uh, the title of the article from the conversation.com is how a team of musicologists and computer scientists, Completed Beethoven's unfinished 10th Symphony. So I would, I wanted to just bring the, just lay this on you cold <laughs> <laughs> to get your natural reaction. I mean, <laughs> and just say, hey, you know what, Garrett, uh, new Beethoven dropped, and just see what you, just to see how you would react. New Beethoven dropped. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right? Oh, all of that money and all of that energy for a, let, let's, let's read a little bit of this. I'll, I'll read from the top. No,
1: now, from to give a little <laughs> bit of context, you said that people have done this with Mahler. Uh, Schubert's Eighth Symphony has been finished. And, and let me let me back all the way up. So, <laughs> okay. for folks,
0: because we're not leaving anybody behind. For folks who don't know, for those of you who, who and good for you for knowing nothing about Beethoven, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> Um, this this has got wrote, to be a record he explosion. Wrote, he opus. wrote nine symphonies, okay, yes. <laughs> and he barely finished that ninth one because he couldn't hardly hear. Well, there have been, um, you know, musicologists over the years that say they have found extracts from a tenth symphony, and I guess in the style—I haven't even read this yet—but in the style of Beethoven, they've put together a, a tenth one, even even after death. Uh, according
1: to the person who wrote this, uh, it says I have pre- I have presided over the artificial intelligence side of this project, meaning they used AI startup Playform AI, taught the machine both Beethoven's entire body of work, and I and I'm not sure how they did this. They taught the computer Beethoven's creative process. Well, you know the I'm, AI
0: the AI is smart. There are, there are songs by artists created by AI, even
1: the recording these I think, days. I think I think Spotify's is- M- m- just making up music and putting it out
0: there Spot- spotify is
1: the who was will smith
0: fighting against in um in i Robot? whatever company that was making those robots i yeah. feel like spotify has an office in that building <laughs> or something you know
1: yeah they won't even uh since i quit My membership, they won't even let me listen to liked songs in their entirety. Mm, I get like 40, mm. 45 seconds of it. Anyway, Anyway. uh, to carry on. So this is a combination of real life and AI coming together to uh, record. It has been recorded. A full recording of Beethoven's 10th Symphony is set to be released. Circle this on your calendar, October 9th, 2021. Same day as the world premiere performance scheduled to take place in Bonn, Germany, the culmination of a two-year-plus effort. What pisses me off is that we have to beg y'all
0: to play music and to highlight music, platform music by the Jean Perros and all of these composers of color, women of color, but y'all going to be falling over yourself to make Give sure me, that your audience hears that, that 10th ding.
1: symphony. Give me the ding-ding. The ding-ding. Well, no, because that's what I thought you were oh. going to say. All that. Because you remember when I brought <laughs> when I brought in the Cat Concerto, and you're oh, like, there is an there I'm is a tired. composer out there. I am tired. Who is it re- was alive <laughs> and ready now. That's
0: what I'm saying, right? Even beyond the historical uh, women and uh, composers of color, right. I've I've been in conversation with composers here on the ground, here in the Twin Cities, right, who talk right. about how it's just impossible to get one of these orchestras to pay attention to your music. Oh, but goodness gracious, Beethoven's tenth, you know, uh, they one of the other things I'll speak to quickly is, you know, this idea of the curse of the ninth. So uh, back in the romantic era, the idea that a composer, because of Beethoven, if he tried to write a 10th symphony, he would die. That actually happened for several composers. I think you mentioned Mahler. You know, he only made it to nine symphonies. There are a lot of composers who only made it to nine. There are a lot who, who wrote more, of course, but you know, especially the way they tied religion and, and the holy and God and classical music back then. If, you know god himself said okay nine symphonies out of beethoven is enough is that enough. that should
1: be enough for us as well is that wrong <laughs> question <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway
1: so who's going to get who's going to uh, have the curse fall on them out of this project
0: <laughs> all right anyway so if y'all want to hear beethoven 10 i'm i don't i'm, I'm annoyed don't, i'm annoyed because of the don't. performances I, oh my gosh the people who are going to be so fucking excited to play beethoven's 10th symphony and to platform it yeah, no, I, I mean, you're going to have to write a break about it. You you will be talking about it on the radio. <laughs> it, it It is going to come down the no. pipelines.
1: <laughs> I, I think I'm going to lose power on that computer
0: right around that time. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> anyway, all right, well, let's just uh, let's move on uh, from this so we can get to the final accidental for the first movement. But I did want to transition with music by who I call my favorite symphonist. So when I'm talking about symphonies in the most traditional Western European sense, I love the symphonies of Dmitry Shostakovich because he put all of the schematics and paradigms and rules of a symphony into his work. But they were just so different and really spoke to the moment. I I, I often, you know, when I make this point, I'm usually pointing to the first symphony of William Grant Still, how he made it jazzy and juba Mm -hmm. and all that, but Mm -hmm. still followed all the symphonic rules, the symphony rules of writing a symphony well you know Shostakovich did the same thing and he survived the curse of the ninth you know he he wrote not only nine ten or eleven but fifteen symphonies so you know take that Beethoven <laughs> see true. see the uh the goddess decided that uh she wanted to hear more from Shostakovich and not Beethoven but anyway and and she tried because she took away his hearing she was like okay all right th- this is already enough let me let me Take care of that hearing of yours, and still manage to write four more. So <laughs> they ought. To, let me let me stop playing. <laughs> is this your favorite Shostakovich? My favorite Shostakovich symphony is his first symphony because there's oh. some there's something. Uh, Again, as we have been described in the press, reckless. <laughs> There's something, re- especially because when you talk about Uh-oh. how Shostakovich was dealing with Stalin and all that, so yeah, he could he could have gotten to some real trouble. He could have died, know, and he did, and he did. Well, he did, you know he he ended up joining the party at at the end of his life, but he definitely got into some major trouble yeah. over the course of his life. Anyway, it all you know this this body of work by my favorite symphonists. Symphonist, it ends you know at the end of this 15th sym- symphony with something a little spooky something that leaves a question mark on his legacy so we'll listen to a bit of this the finale the shostakovich 15 to get us into our final accidental say that's a pretty nice way to put a bow on your legacy as a symphonist but some motherfucker gonna come and sit and talk about Shostakovich 16 right (laughs) I don't know are there fragments of it around somewhere anyway I'm tired because look the point is there is music by folks that are alive and well that we're ignoring Mm -hmm. and we're computer generating more of the status quo I can't I can't hashtag I can't (laughs) <laughs> i thought it would be fun i didn't mean it's to tax. i didn't mean i didn't it's mean funny. to tax you i'm sorry i thought we could bat it around classical a bit. classical music is taxing there's just no way to get around it yeah <laughs> all right one more one more accidental for uh this week so uh as folks don't know because this is audio and not uh video Typically, when Scott and I record here in Studio G, I have the window open. But what I mean by that is I turn on a live stream of some camera somewhere around the world. So it looks like we're you know looking out the window at the beach in Maui or on the train Trains in, in Norway, Norway or, or whatever. Yeah. Well, um, tonight I uh, pulled out just a, a stream of Times Square and we actually saw the stream or folks watching the stream of uh, Fire Shut Up In My Bones, the Terrence Blanchard opera uh, per, that premiered tonight at the Metropolitan Opera the first time an opera by a black composer ever hit that stage now just you know again for the new folks we celebrate the firsts for the people not for the institutions because right. the met has been around for a hundred something years there have been operas by all kinds of black folks dead and alive men and women and this is the first time so so shame on y'all the met okay because that's pitiful that's pitiful But shout out and congratulations to Terrence Terrence Blanchard. Blanchard. So give him a little bit of applause. um, I'm actually going to see this opera in a couple weeks. So I'm excited to be in New York and take part in this historic moment and historic moment. Again, if they set up chairs and a thing in Times Square to watch an opera, it must be, you know, something pretty cool. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. But I'm going to give this bit of news a natural because... The reaction to it has just, you know, naturally been what I expected (laughs) on the on the Metropolitan Opera's Facebook page. It got really spicy and it looks like I'm scrolling. It looks like whoever does the social media over there has deleted a lot of the, the negative things because all you're seeing are folks writing about.
1: A response
0: how it is uh, how, how can i say like taking up for the opera like you right, know right, b- right. B- because obviously people were on here talking about oh this isn't real opera and xyz and da 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 now the clip that the met posted i'm sure from a rehearsal Uh, featured what looked to me like a fraternity stepping, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we can have the conversation of perpetrating, perping, and all of that. Are those all real Kappas on stage? Because, you know, we need to talk about that. But, (laughs) but I trust that with black folks in the room (laughs) that was something that was addressed but Mm -hmm. anyway the social media was was getting crazy you know folks talking about this ain't opera oh we're here for rossini we're here for mozart and all this stuff but you know that comment section and the narratives that are there it reiterates the trepidation that black folks like me and other folks have when we talk about going into any opera or any classical music space, much less the, has, you know, uh, uppercase, uh, uppercase T, the Metropolitan Opera. If we have folks with that attitude in the comment section, of course especially considering those ticket prices, we have folks in the hall having those ideas. So I I'm I am i gonna see I'm looking forward I'm not only looking forward to seeing it, I'm looking forward to coming back and telling y'all about my whole experience. Sure. Because uh as I've told people, I've I've been liberated, I don't wear church socks. So (laughs) so So. I'm I'm going in my Tim's. that's because it's New York. I have to wear my Tim's, you know. Um but you know so I I'm not gonna be in there with a suit on. I'm you know I'm gonna look my nice it's not like i'm going in with a t-shirt or a, a, with mustard stains on it or <laughs> you know but but not that i would ever you know but uh, but I, I'm, I'm 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 gonna show up as i am and We'll, we'll we'll see what happens. I think one of the things that we need to continue to address, you know, in the downbeat, was it that, yeah, in the downbeat, we were talking about how we have the responsibility to make the bed, to set the room of the space that we want to back up from so that it can be more diverse or whatever. We just can't leave and say, well, your problem now, you know? I think one of the ways that that's happening here with this opera, you know, again, the first black opera at the Met, is that we aren't talking about the space For the audience itself being a safe space for those black folks. I mean, if if white folks are are talking about all this stuff in the comment section, do you not think some of them will go and hate watch (laughs) the opera in the same way that we hate Hmm. watch or hate participate in everything else in society?
1: Boy, there must be some real masochists if that's the
0: case where they're that dedicated to their their ideals and 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 their beliefs you know they want to be there so that they can say well and i'm not just saying that i went to the opera and, da, 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 and blah 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 i feel like there's going to be a lot of that there how by, long, by the time this is done running how long
1: does the met typically run a production
0: i'm not sure but i think this is running for about three weeks because i'm i'm going um in in two weeks from from this moment when so you, we recorded,
1: so even even the person that is the most against, let's not even say a black composer, mm-hmm. the most against a new opera sure. because it's not the fine classic canon or whatever. Right, right. Um, you can't give up three weeks. <laughs> no, because they want it all.
0: <laughs> what did Freddie Mercury say? I want it all. Yeah, <laughs> and wanted it now. I guess. Well, you know, um, I think the other, you know, one of the other things I'm thinking about is, and you make a great point. You know, let let's let's even. I don't t- take race out of things, but let's take race out of it, just a new opera. This culture, this atmosphere that the Met has coddled these people into having for all of you know these decades, over a hundred years, is being challenged now and they don't like that. And I think as we move forward, using these buzzwords like inclusivity and diversity and access, you know, those words right. specifically, we aren't talking about the backlash, the white lash, the, the tenseness that's being created in those spaces. And I think that is definitely going to be one of the narratives to come out of, uh, of, of this whole opera run after it's, after it's all said and done. Yeah.
1: You're hitting on something with the access piece, because I don't think that I could afford comfortably a, a mat ticket. Listen, and what are these going for? Yeah, you I know?
0: I can't comfortably afford it myself, but I mean, I'm 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 paying to be in there. I think uh, I I don't have the the seat map pulled up, but the the nosebleeds, the nose nosebleeds for the show that I'm going to are fifty. And if I'm going to spend $50, I feel like, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm privileged. I have it. If I'm going to spend $50, I I better spend 150 and be able to see something. But even the one, I think the ticket I'm getting is one seventy. even that is not like, uh, you know, the seat, you know, the, the, the seats that I would love to have are like 700 and 800. And if you pull up the seat map, it's not it's not red dots down there it's white dots which means the seats have been they're bought. sold you know they're, they're sold so people have this so when we talk about you know this access and inclusion it's fine it's great that they have put out chairs on Times square for you brokies to t- to take a look at the opera but we want to make sure that you know we reserve the real seats for our our folk for coat wearers is and that stuff. is that
1: something new the broadcast out in Times square is that Something new? I, I haven't, I don't know either way. Because the New World Symphony down in South Beach has been doing that like since they opened. They, they, they set up the outdoor Brokey section, is what you're saying. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, and you know, it, it seemed like that section was the popular one because you could, you know, lay down and have your wine and all that kind of and stuff. And the conversation that they
0: don't have that I've heard from people who live down there is that they shoe off the houseless people who sleep there so that they can set that up. See, that's, that's a right. weekly exercise down there as well.
1: Okay, so then having the money to go and have one of the nice seats and everything and separate yourself from, what, the rabble rousers, the, the houseless, right? I mean, isn't that part of it? Keeping yourself away from that element? For the people buying that ticket. I'm not saying for me. I mean, but for the people spending the money, isn't that part of the allure, the eliteness of it? But see, but see, they see the blackness trickling in. See, now, see, it, it starts yeah, with the okay. Terrence
0: Blanchard opera. And Next, y'all are going to just put anything up there on stage, and you know, you let know. Me, you, let me
1: tell everybody. Why are you acting
0: like you don't understand how these people act? Th-
1: let me let me tell you a little bit about Garrett. I like to set the table, <laughs> and Garrett likes to come in and, and shove it while I'm setting the table. So thanks for that. Um, the, the, the tickets need
0: to be cheaper. Listen, metropolitan opera people, the tickets need to be cheaper, period. There need to be 10 and 15 and $20 tickets to this thing. Mm-hmm. And if you mm-hmm. want black folks to be there, you can't rely on the few of us who managed to scrape and save up a few dollars to go because, and I, I just really want to make the point. This is a historic, historic thing. So that is the, that is my means of justifying spending the little couple coins I have okay to go buy one of these tickets but it's not like I just have it either to just you know because I'm not gonna we typically I would say I better be going to see beyonce if I'm spending 200 dollars on something oh I you can't
1: know. I can't think of an artist that I would pay that much to go and see
0: but it's a it's it's a historic moment and I want to be back here to give y'all the real tea of what it's like for Looking someone forward. like me who is problematic I'm gonna have a joint on me I, mean, <laughs> I won't try to smoke it in the theater maybe we'll see anyway we mentioned uh <laughs> We we mentioned Freddie Freddie Mercury, so how about we we uh, transition into the second movement with a little bit of that tune. Where do you rank that one, as, when it, when it comes to the the catalog of Queen? Everyone talks about Bohemian Rhapsody, and that is an incredible composition. But that tune there, would would you consider that an A side or a B side?
1: Oh, that's an unsung gem oh, right is there. It? Yeah,
0: I, I only know it because I think of a T Mobile commercial. Uh-huh. So <laughs> yeah. So shout shout out to uh, T Mobile.
1: This is not an ad. And uh, <laughs> shout out to Brian May, the guitarist. Yeah. Oh, that's who was playing all that fancy oh, stuff. Yeah, at the beginning. He's, yeah, he he's a legend. Yeah, yeah. So shout out to Queen, and
0: we're here in the second movement. Where Scott and I are taking the second ending. We take a piece of music that we've been spending a bit of time with this week, and uh, instead of repeating it, we take the second ending to let y'all know why we were repeating it all week. I I, I know we planned for you to go first, but because we just heard that that attitude, mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm gonna go ahead and and, and keep that energy up. So okay. I have been preparing for a couple of performances okay so i'm actually getting the bassoon out and and going down and playing my scales you changed your profile pic and everything uh, oh i did i
1: okay so one of them on instagram yeah so you you know the profile of you playing the bassoon so you must be in playing mode
0: oh yeah i I like to rotate them because if you look at my twitter and my facebook it's not that photo so i just like to make sure that folks remember you know um that, you know, that I'm a real musician. And as soon as I start practicing and taking one of these auditions, it's over for some of y'all. It's over for you. But anyway, <laughs> and it'll be over for me, too, because I <laughs> mean, <some of> y- <laughs> anyway, so I haven't been just listening to music in the way that I normally do because I've been practicing. You know, I've, I've been doing that. I've been listening to the metronome. Shout out to John Del Vento. Um, but the one tune that I have managed to make my way to just uh, of happenstance is one that For many people, they hear every morning. So where I want to start is that, you know, for the black folks or anyone who listens to The Breakfast Club out of New York, you know, speaking of The Met, I guess we're still in New York here a little bit. Um, If you listen to The Breakfast Club and you wake up for the opening of the show, you hear a bit of this. (laughs) that's what they hear, okay? So the first point I want to make is that this music does not fall into the core sound or the the programmatic center of most black stations. I would argue to say all black stations and yet the Black Run Breakfast Club radio show you know, for years now has affirmed that piece of music is not only a great one to wake up to, but one that all people should celebrate, despite genre, despite community. Of course, Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. Um to that point, real and we don't we won't spend a whole bunch of time talking, but to that point specifically, most of the stations that carry that radio show are hip hop R and B stations and they play that. Mm-hmm. Is that not enough? To push the needle when it comes to broadening the general aesthetic and sound of other types of stations, dare I even say classical stations, to step out even for a little bit just to affirm some great music that might not necessarily fit into the box that the radio station fits into.
1: Why do you think they picked it?
0: Because I think it's a, a really dope song, and I think it's a great one to, to listen to as you wake up. And, I mean, do it's they, a great part
1: of the catalog. Do they just play the intro, or do they get into the vocals? How much of it gets heard? It's it's The
0: the song is the bed music for hello, good morning, welcome, all that stuff. So some mornings you hear nearly the whole thing. Oh. Sometimes it's not, but, but all of that aside, I don't think that matters as much to the point as I'm trying to make that that is an aesthetic that you don't hear on a classical station, right? And there's no difference between that not fitting a classical format and that not fitting a hip hop and R and B format, but yet it's affirmed. That's the that's the point I'm trying to make.
1: You know. I, yeah, I see what you're so saying. It, well, go ahead. No, what I what I, all I was trying to get at is, um, why why would they use it though?
0: Because because it's great music, and there's a lot of great music out there. You know, I don't I don't know what happened when they were in the room and they decided to do it. You know, but it's 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 a it's a good fit and thanks to that show it's a tune that more folks who might not be into that genre of music can appreciate and then go on to appreciate the legacy of Kurt Cobain and and all of that stuff just providing that window of access despite the so-called rules mm-hmm. of genre you know that that's, that's what i'm trying to
1: say bring uh bring up the uh, the drum kick early in that would you can you can you back it up and and bring in the drum kick one more time no, where the where the drums first where the drums first hit. Because Dave Grohl is the drummer, right? Okay. Okay, now bring it up. Um he said he lifted that from the Sugar Hill gang.
0: See, look at look at black people giving it all to y'all. Okay. It wasn't given. It was stolen. It
1: was lifted.
0: <laughs> well, I'm talking about giving the culture, providing oh, the sound. Okay. Anyway, so it's, it's uh, uh, I think on September 10th, it was uh, the 30 year anniversary. Of that tune, so yeah. you know, again, not not only this incredible song, but a uh, 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 an important anniversary of the tune. I hear that, and I think of nonconformist thought as it existed in in the grunge scenes of the '90s, and I know that every generation likes to act like we reinvented the re, uh, the wheel, or we're the first ones who were really trying to push the needle. But even you know, in my younger my younger perspective, I was you know. Five years old and and when, when this song came out or whatever mm-hmm. whenever it came out uh but it, from that perspective i can see a youth that did something different than the youth of the 80s your generation uh, something different than the uh the, than the hippies of the uh of the previous generation the flower power and all that to me that is new energy. And when I hear that song, I'm just reminded of the new energy that today's younger generation, the folks even younger than me at this point are bringing to the table. I wouldn't say that the idea of pushing over these tables, these status quos, erasing genre, all of these conversations, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're new, but the energy surrounding it feels pretty new. And this piece of music just reminds me of that, that idea and that concept. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Thanks. Um, so, uh, I, 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 as much as I love, you know, the idea again of knocking over, you know, what we're supposed to say is the sound of a station or, or a hall or a space or whatever. I think that piece of music, if it's good enough to be featured on a hip hop and R&B station every Monday through Friday, I think that piece of music and that aesthetic has room in, in other spaces, even classical spaces, but even, even to that. There have been arrangements of the tune made that, you know, are a little more comfortable for the folks who love following rules. So one of the groups I've been following for probably about 20 years now is a chamber music ensemble from Australia. I think Australia, they're called, uh, I'm sorry if it's New Zealand, but they're definitely down under. Um, they're called Aston. I used to program them all the time at my first radio gig in Knoxville. I, I put a couple of their tracks on when I was sub hosting in St. Louis and um, among their many covers uh, is Nirvana smell smells like teen spirit so let's listen to a little of this uh, so-called classical take on it to get to your accidental or your music. What you think of that? Would you uh, would you speak to that and affirm that with pride if it made it across one of your playlists? That's you know maybe even tell a story about how you know back when you smelled like Teen Spirit. It seems like
1: <laughs> it seems like they're trying really hard. Oh, no, it, oh it's what it the seems shade, like shade. Oh my god. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm gonna go back to the Beethoven thing and go. Why don't I play? Why don't I play something by a living composer and somebody working now? Sure. Why do I? Why? Why? Why not play something that that ensemble wrote yeah. or arranged or something? Maybe they did arrange that. I don't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, why does it have to be a cover? My my comeback to that is that
0: in the way that we have to affirm living composers and do all of that, I think a part of the work, at least from my perspective, is breaking down the status quo. And that is a a type of music, it, despite the fact that it's a cover, that I think in a classical space breaks down that status quo. Okay. And so that, that would be my justification and, and the reason why I would push something like that to the front. When we talk about classical
1: programming, what I want to push to the front is, uh, a track that I, would you call autumn leaves a torch song or, or or like a, a standard? How, How would you, I don't, I don't think I know this piece of music. You don't No. Oh gosh. Okay. Well, um, KD Lang is the version that I picked. And this is an example of an artist that has been out there in one genre. And then later on, like as a mellowing of the career, you know, starts to stretch out into other genres. And I think that the voice, her voice and her presence is more powerful in the style of Autumn Leaves than it is. Uh, you might recognize the, the, the song Constant Craving from okay. the radio. Do you remember that? N- not by name. Well, that, that was Katie Lang's big. Okay. Yeah. You know, What's the, What genre are you talking about? Oh, she's a singer-songwriter. Um... You know, maybe uh, adult contemporary. Okay. Well, you know, but, thanks to the barriers and the walls we build around genre, I've never heard of that or her. So. Okay. And, well, and that's my point. That's my point. And autumn leaves, the way that she does it here, is more in the style of uh, a, of a torch song. Of a, and What do you a, mean by that? A torch song. You know the 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 um, the classics. The um the not not the classics from. The classical era, but I'm talking like uh, a '40s and '50s big band sort of vibe. Oh, okay. I've never heard that phrase "torch song." Okay, um, I might not be using it right. That's that's entirely possible. But "Autumn Leaves" is—I'm uh, uh, not even sure who wrote it. But you know, it's—it's it's, um, let let's find that out real quick.
0: Here it, it lists a few writers, Jacques Prevert, Johnny Mercer, Johnny and Mercer, Joseph uh, Kosma, yeah.
1: Johnny Mercer, yeah.
0: Okay, but I, I like the vibe of this, and it's not lost on me that, you know, the leaves are starting to turn here, and we're we're hearing this music, but you're saying that the original of this was like a big band,
1: or... Uh, uh, I've heard it that way, yeah. Okay. Um, but, yeah, over the weekend, I was in a part of Minneapolis called the North Loop, and... Just the way that the leaves would sort of get stuck in, like a little tornado in the entryway of mm-hmm. some of the buildings. You've got this sun that it feels like you're just under a heat lamp, and then you go into the shade, and you'll freeze. Sure, <laughs> you know. So we're in sure. that part where you're not really sure if you if you should wear shorts and the short sleeve shirt, right, or Actually put on, you know, some, some real fall clothes or You have to do like a San that.
0: Francisco style and always carry around a light sweater. I guess you have to. <laughs> but, this time of year.
1: But the way that Katie Lang her her breathiness too in it mm-hmm. is almost like every line that she sings is being sighed. Yeah. And and it has that vibe of the season. I listened to it, I don't know, probably half a dozen times over the last week. And I, I wish that Katy would do more of this sort of vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the, beautiful. The pop songs that she wrote that was fine, you know. But I really enjoy this from Katy.
0: Yeah, it's, it's it's beautiful music. And again, I find I feel like I say this in some way. I point to this every week. But when I hear this, let's. I mean, let me let me go back to a little of it here. So we're we're hearing the. A concertina ben, yeah I was gonna say bandonian, but you sure uh, concertina got some strings in there the soft rhythm in there got a string bass there's probably a little bit yeah there's some piano in there and then you have Miss Lang singing so beautifully on top of it if we took her out and the melody instead of Katie Lang singing was a violin or a flute or something
3: mm, mm-hmm. it would be
0: completely acceptable for so many of these classical spaces, but the fact that we are hearing the human voice disqualifies it. The, the the more that I just return to that idea, the more ridiculous it seems to me. Just like the, you know, tastes like teen spirit. I think that is definitely a piece of music that deserves a spot in those classical spaces, especially this time of year, because that whole vibe and that whole aesthetic is reminding people, it can remind audiences of exactly the thing you are speaking to. The leaves changing for the first time in a few months, you actually feel a little chilly. And, yeah. you know, 58, yeah. 50, even here in Minnesota, you know, 58 degrees after summer feels like, ooh, there's this a little chill in the air now. You know, come April and even May, we're going to be hoping for 58 degrees, <laughs> right? But <laughs> yeah.
1: 58 whole degrees. It but. is really weird how after a hot summer, 45, 50 degrees, it's like, ooh, geez. Yeah. But then after a cold winter, you will go out barefoot in 45 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> I think even National Public
0: Radio, the the cartoonists, they uh, drew a picture uh, you know, seventy seventy degrees in the fall, the woman is bundled up and has yep. her pumpkin spice latte. Yep. Seventy degrees in the spring, she's in shorts and ready to go swimming right. So it's it's all relative, just like everything. So when you
1: yeah, so actually try this out when you listen to that track on the playlist, get your pumpkin spice latte and pour it down the drain. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll drink a nice PCL every now and then, PSL
0: every now and again. Okay, <laughs> but I'm more about the matcha. I think that's a nice um, Mm. autumn beverage for me. All right. Well, uh, we're getting into the third movement here. This week's guests are Marcus Norris and Terrell Johnson. Marcus Norris is a uh, composer, a millennial composer who has seen a bit of success across the country with many different premieres and performances. One of the things that I have coming up um, is uh, the performance of one of his bassoon and piano works. So, you know, I'm, I'm getting into even the contemporary chamber music, which is really fun but he's also had um, a violin concerto called glory performed by a few orchestras across the country including the chicago philharmonic not to be confused with the chicago symphony orchestra but another group there the chicago philharmonic the new executive director of the chicago philharmonic is terrell johnson so he also joins to talk about some of their collaborations what uh the the movement forward looks like from the composer perspective and what the movement forward looks like from the institutional perspective all the way up to the executive director so i'm looking forward to sharing this conversation with y'all where we start the conversation is uh you know many reviewers will say marcus's music brings a different feel into the space again Mm -hmm. we're talking about general aesthetics so i start out by um asking marcus about that and we sort of just uh run with it so to get us to our conversation we're going to listen to uh the tail end of glory as published here on his website that i will have available in the description of this so here's glory by marcus norris and here's my conversation with marcus norris and terrell johnson from the chicago philharmonic orchestra
2: I try to just write about human experiences always. Um, that's just my relationship with art. Like all of the arts is like, I, I try to base them in real things that we're all going through or or that are deeply personal. Um, when I was younger and I was an undergrad, I was really like nervous about like this whole, like, cause I work in different genres and and mm-hmm. I try to like often like put them together in the same events or, and, and all of this. And so I was like nervous about, um people that would maybe if they're coming for like the concert music, maybe they don't want to hear rap and R and B, or people that's coming for rap and R and B, maybe they don't want to hear concert music, like mm-hmm. instrumental things. Um, and then I had a mentor tell me like what's from the heart reaches the heart. And and it just always stuck with me since then. So I just try to always write from the heart when I'm when I'm making things and then just trust that, you know, it, it it'll, it'll touch the heart of somebody else.
0: Yeah. So Terrell to that as new um, Chicago Philharmonic Executive Director, what do you want audiences to feel? How do you approach that question?
4: Um, I, I think most importantly is um, they should feel inspired. You know, they should, you, you wanna take them on a journey, take them away for that 90 minutes or two hours for a performance. And um, something I think is so exciting with programming and with our art form is is um, being able to kind of capture like the human ex- experience and condition and all these emotions and and everything, you know, sonically. And to have so many people interpret it in different ways and, and um, you know, just have so many different experiences sitting in the same theater. And so I, I just want people to be inspired. I want people to, to just have a moment to be taken on a trip. Yeah. So um, for me, programming is so important and that's why I've been so excited working with Marcus and just, you know, having, you know, unique music being heard, music that reflects artists of our time and, um, you know, the now and, and our conditions now. So I think it's great to to honor the music of the past, but I think it's so important to to look to the future, especially so.
0: Yeah, and there are a lot of people in Chicago to inspire and, and to engage for, for folks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with you, Terrell, for folks who uh, don't live in the Chicago area, you know, they, they may get confused as far as the different ensembles that are there. So, you know, you have the uh, the symphony orchestra, you have the opera, you have the Sinfonietta, but then you have the philharmonic, the Chicago philharmonic. I, I wonder how you engage um you know, the unique role the Chicago Philharmonic fills in a city that has, you know, so many high quality, high level arts institutions, performance performing arts institutions.
4: We, we, we do have a very rich ecosystem here when it comes <laughs> to the arts. And yes. um, I, I think we all, like all those institutions that you mentioned serve a, like a very strong purpose uh, individually, but we also collaborate um often and what's really exciting about the philharmonic is that our organization is unique because we represent kind of the the collection of all those institutions and so we were founded by the lyric opera musicians of the lyric opera um and so we have lyric opera musicians grand park symphony chicago symphony uh chicago symphonietta um many of them make up the those are the you know, individuals that make up the, the chicago philharmonic And what's, you know, kind of going back to the programming again, um, we are are unique because we're musician governed. And so the artists are the ones driving the car. And so I think that makes the Chicago Philharmonic very nimble. It makes us um, be able to, to, to really do the things that the artists on stage want to do. I think it's so important that they're um, governing this organization, you know, and I'm serving as executive director, but but having this unique governance model to musicians with the artists um, at the forefront of leadership and collaborating with them really sets us apart from other organizations within Chicago, but
2: also in the United States. Yeah, yeah.
0: Marcus, I, I forget, are you originally from
2: Chicago? Are you a Chicago native? No, I'm originally from Jackson, Michigan. I just uh, lived in Chicago for some years.
0: Oh, okay. Well, even with your uh, years of experience living in Chicago, how do you see uh, the the Philharmonic's role, again, in a city where there's so much high-quality music? happening, especially when we talk and we're going to get to program but programming, but when we're talking about diversifying audiences and, and getting more black folks involved, you know, is is to the general person, is the Chicago Philharmonic uh, different or, or unique or do you see, you know, the one of the challenges being getting folks just toward the concept of the concert space, if, th- if that question makes sense.
2: <laughs> I think I, I think it makes sense I mean, I'm going to answer what I think it is yeah, and just sure. <laughs> feel free to steer me if uh, if I'm not on the right track but yeah I, um, I guess
0: I guess basically I'm asking uh, from your perspective are we dealing with getting folks to engage the arts in general or is it a is it a matter of well the Philharmonic is more my speed or the Chicago Symphony is more my speed you know th- that balance there
2: Um, to me, it seems like a, it just, and this, these are my views, these aren't the Chicago Mm Philharmonic's views for the record, but for me, it, it seems more just about like speaking to people on, on their terms, in terms relevant to their life. Yeah. And I think like, like this, um, composer in residence, uh, thing that they're doing is a big, a big step forward for that. Um, like when I was coming up, I didn't really. Um, go to any orchestra concerts or like i didn't really get into like concert music until i was like an adult Mm. and um because it just wasn't uh, there were no attempts made to be relevant to my life as a young black man um and i think what the chicago Phil is doing i'm obviously maybe i'm a little biased but i think what the chicago Phil is doing now is, is a big step forward towards that
0: yeah, yeah. And you, you said you didn't come up going to orchestra concerts or anything, but you did come up as your bio reads making beats on pirated uh <laughs> on pirated <laughs> software or or whatever. So, you know, with that I imagine there is, you know, some proximity you have to the streets, as we say, just a just a black folks and and black culture, black communities. As you've bloomed, as your uh, career has grown, I wonder if you feel like you've left those communities behind. How does your career now speak to the folks, to to the streets?
2: Oh, it's like a hundred percent. Like like everything I do is it, that's I write music for uh, people like me, and and these are who I'm thinking about. Um, I recently got a, a, a pretty negative review from like a really older white man. And I remember thinking like, maybe it just wasn't for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In my head, you know what I mean? It's like, I, everything I write is for people like me. Um, I gave a talk to the musicians. Um, so Chicago Field just played uh, my my first like uh violin concerto called Glory. Mm-hmm. And I gave a talk to the musicians um, at the rehearsal that I attended. Uh, There's this section in the beginning where I put these like um, Bartok pits in the low strings where they like, for those who don't know, Bartok pits is when you like pluck the string so hard that it rattles the whole string on the bass. Um, And I was telling them, I'm like, the idea, like the inspiration behind this section was like growing up and being riding, riding in like a hoopty with like, where like the subwoofers are worth more than the car. And every time the bass hit, it just rattles the whole everything um and and that was the the inspiration behind this moment um so i often think like i often like wonder like could people who don't have these shared cultural experiences it, can you can you fully appreciate those and and i think you can still appreciate the music of course and i hope so yeah. um but it, there's just so many like specific cultural things in my music um that i i never i never shy away from i never try to filter out um and I, I just lean into, you know. And maybe even
0: cross pollination. What you know, when you were mentioning the uh, the talk pits, I can speak to that, you know, as 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 it exists in that repertoire. But I had to jot it down. I also thought of don't sweat the technique and the and the baseline. Uh, in that tune that could be you know, categorized as a, an example of some uh, talk pits. Uh, and, and we will talk about glory, but Terrell, um, I, I wanted to offer you the same question. So as your career as an arts administrator has bloomed and taken you across the country, collaborating with all of these different organizations, how do you engage the conversation of not leaving the communities that you identify with behind how how do you how do you take black communities on the journey that you've been on and that you're continuing on
4: Uh, that's a great question um i i was listening to a there was a panel discussion a while back and they kind of titus underwood um put it really really well he said this this at least for me it resonated really well for me he was talking about big cultural institutions, you know, like the titans uh, that have the massive venues and, and, you know, the huge city squares, uh, like the epicenter of the arts and cities. And, you know, these spaces are funded by the community um, in many ways, and often the land is donated, mm-hmm. and um, what he said was, if those spaces aren't serving the community, uh they kind of can turn into a golf course. Right. And I was like, whoa, because I I I just I I mean I, I respect golf. I never I never had the opportunity to play golf though. So for me it's like <laughs> yeah you know, I I would love to, to to start, but I just like that that resonated with me because it was very true. Like, yeah, if if you have this like, you know, land is so precious and you have this space. And if you're not really serving your full community Then for many people it can turn into this into a golf course so i mean for me it's so important to be inclusive and and to make sure that everyone feels welcome to enter a space and you know i I want my family to come you know yeah Uh, i I, like it's so important for me to, to see people on stage to see people in the audience that look like me or don't look like me i want to see everyone there so um that's that's been essential for me. Um, I I can't speak to it enough. That it's our responsibility to make sure that our patrons feel comfortable. That that um, that our artists feel comfortable being on stage. You know that the, that the people there feel that they're included and they're part. They're a part of this community. So uh, nonprofits and the arts. I think we. It's our mission. It's, it has to be our mission to be directly rooted into the community and to be um, a welcoming space. So that's, that's been very, very important for me as I look to the future for the Philharmonic, the ways we can be more inclusive are going to be essential. I mean, it's funny, Marcus, when you're saying about like having the 12s in the back of your car, because, you know, I had that, that two-door <laughs> Hyundai accent, you know, with-, with Am- The whole Hyundai accent. And, <laughs> in Am- the back. and and so it's funny for me to hear that because i'm like oh that's that's exactly right so i so
2: specific man it it, it, i don't know i'm big on that man that's these these are our stories and we got to tell them
0: yeah mm-hmm. yeah and, and Terrell maybe you and the other folks with executive director in their title in Chicago can go on a group golf trip y'all can y'all can <laughs> go, go diversify the, the course in that way <laughs> I,
4: need, I need lessons please I would
0: love to <laughs> so, so Marcus I, I do want to uh talk about glory just a, a really incredible piece of music and it reminds me of a conversation that I feel like uh we're getting closer to or we're being forced to get closer to in art spaces we have music that is Black. I'm I'm thinking about uh, Nina Simone and, you know, even uh, the the very Black Afro-American Symphony of William Grant Still. And then we have music that fits the aesthetic of those spaces that I feel like happens to be by Black folks. I'm thinking about Joseph Bologna, even Samuel Coleridge-Taylor to a degree. So with all of that stuff in mind, I wonder where on that spectrum you see glory. Are you writing music that Black folks identify as Black, or is this orchestral music that happens to be by a Black person?
2: Um, so how, how I, that's a great question, but how I think about it is like, I, I try to approach all these things like, what if they didn't exist and they were invented by a a young Black man in his 20s today? Mm-hmm. What would that be like? That's kind of like my way of doing it. And I think about like, um, uh like like for example like because black folks like um I, I heard a european composer say in undergrad that like a lot of like european composers don't even like approach like orchestral music or like string quartets until they're like 40 because they have this oh. like weight of like beethoven and and you know i mean all these like geniuses weights on their shoulder but like for me my personal views were just like you know like, like of like the Malcolm school where it's like, it's like, they never, they never loved this. Like we not part of that. So I don't have no, I don't have none of that weight. So I can just do whatever yeah. I want to do and write whatever I want to write. And um, like I said, when the bass comes in, it's very much, boom, 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 boom. It's very yeah. much it, to me, it's very black to me. Or like there's very like lush parts of it where it's like, um, like these progressions are like progressions I learned studying like Robert Glasper and, and these type of things, or or even I would say even just like the attitude of it, um, it like especially like the solo parts, I I think are like super black. But I, I guess to like more specifically answer your question, like where I would be on the spectrum, I think I think about it less like that, and I think about it more like, um, instead of like two patches of fabric that I'm sewing together, I think about it like what if you just took those fabric all the way apart down to the threads and then just kind of like wove them together to make something new that you like, you know, like it's um, it's not red, it's not blue, it's like purple. Yeah, if that makes
0: sense. Yeah, and that in itself is a part of the black tradition, even outside of music, just taking exactly. things and, and making them new. That's beautiful. And uh, the Chicago Philharmonic performance uh, wasn't the first performance of Glory, and it certainly you know won't won't be the last. I, I I'm sorry that uh, one of the orchestras that uh, uh, performed Glory, the Jackson Symphony, I used to play down there, so I hate that. You know, the timeline didn't uh, oh, <laughs> work out for me to for me to play that piece there. But I, I wonder what you learned. Um, about yourself as a composer uh, with each performance of this piece of music? Do you hear one orchestra play it and you say, oh, shoot, I need to go back and make the second flute part do this? Or is, is that a part of, of the process?
2: Yeah, and and that's also very Black. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's, to me, it's like, I don't know, I always have to tell people like, this piece of paper is not the music. It, it's like the people in the room together playing it, that's the music. And this is just like, you know, like an instruction manual or like, or like a playbook kind of mm-hmm. like in a, in a, use a sports reference. Um, so it's definitely always changing and it's evolving. And that's another thing I, uh, I picked up from my friend, I, I think it's our mutual friend, Adrian Dunn. Oh it's yeah, like shout, I've out been working, shout out to Adrian, man. But I've been like, uh, so we met when I was like really young, like, I don't know, 22, 21 or something like that. And, and, um and I've got to work with him all these years um and like adrian is like notorious from that it's like the what's on the paper is like a loose suggestion at best (laughs) (laughs) but but i really respected that because it's like um he's just always willing to like it's always about making the music better and he's not afraid to like well if it's going to be better this way when we put it on the people then let's do it and and then i think he performs a lot of his own music, whereas I that's not my role. So it's like I have the added burden of like I have to go back and write it all down again. But yeah, <laughs> but but definitely there's like a lot of like little things. and And even after this last performance, we just did like what a week or two ago. It's like I got like a list of things I need to like notate in. A, a lot of it comes down to like maybe the vision doesn't change, but like um just getting more and more clear about the notation even like even like what you just said you uh i don't remember if the recording had started at that time but you, you were saying like for for miss me it's like not everybody can read that clef so i'm gonna need to go back and, and, <laughs> and figure out another way to write it so that like uh you know i, I eventually I'm, I'm not gonna be able to be at all the performances or like long time knock or wood i'll be, I'll be gone and, yeah. and you would love for people to be able to keep playing it without having to pick my brain about it
0: yeah. Or or you know, to be fair, maybe we bassoonists need to step our game up and just read that trouble cliff and you know, man up woman up in that way.
2: <laughs> well, you're a bassoonist, so you could say it, I can't.
0: <laughs> so and and Terrell you know this of course brings us back to the conversation of programming you know the the critique the little dust in the corners that uh, folks in, in my line of work will always throw out is well it's great that you got Marcus's piece Glory on a program but that's one composer and one piece of music and and one moment I wonder how you approach the idea of programming in general I mean you have folks like me who would say just make the whole season black and then you have folks on <laughs> on the other side who would say well we have to you know speak to all of our communities how, how do you approach uh, a good balance uh, while you know changing the field and, and using your your position of power uh, and influence to the to the uh, greatest ability you can hmm.
4: that's a great question I think in in terms of changing the field something I noticed um, People were getting stuck on a couple, like maybe a year or two ago, um, when we were really uh, focusing on being more inclusive in in orchestral music. I noticed people were focusing on exclusively, if you're adding black artists, that means like you're, you know, they're putting themselves in a box. You can only play Marcus's piece. Mm -hmm. And or I feel like like the options were limitless because like yeah we could obviously you know the Chicago Philharmonic we've added a composers in residence program because we want to also be increasing the rep and also highlighting all the great artists that are out there but also like these things are simple as um, there are so many tremendous black performers too so just because like you can still play uh, you know like the, the the standard rep and and there's great i mean fantastic artists out there and now they're all kind of um on high demand like it's impossible you know to right. start to people because like now we're all like oh my goodness these people have always been there you and love to see it yeah
0: <laughs> it's like black um, history month all year now
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah but what i think is so strange was that some some people were focusing exclusively like if if you wanted to play Uh, a certain piece, like you couldn't have, you know, Mozart Clarinet Concerto with the Black clarinetist. Of course, you have Anthony McGill. There's so many like terrific musicians out there. So just because, you know, maybe we didn't write the piece doesn't mean we can't perform it. So I think it was interesting, um, that dichotomy, that certain places were kind of in in this reflection of uh, being more inclusive. They were kind of forgetting like, obviously all these great works should be added but we have great musicians to play everything mm-hmm. so um, so i think the, op- the options are limitless in terms of, of of having more you know diversity in our art form because you know we can either be uh, executive director we can be you know the composer of, of of the works on the program or we can be the artist performing it so um, I think those options are limitless, so, so I don't really, in terms of, of, of programming and, and providing that guidance, I, I don't think I'm, I'm trying to limit in any way who's on the program, I think because the, the options are, are, are abundant. Yeah. Um, I will say I am super proud of, obviously, us having this uh, Donna Milanovich Composers in Residence program because I do think that we, need, we really need to be uh, doing more to push forward Um, The the young composers, and also um, just playing new music, I think is so important. So uh, in in terms of programming and and planning for a concert, that balance between new music and, you know, the old standard pieces, I don't think there's a formula to that. Um, I don't see, I I don't, in terms of programming, I don't think people should be thinking about ticket sales. Mm. Like if you're programming a certain piece, oh, that concert, it didn't sell well, so let's never do it again. You know, this is, this is the long haul. Like, like, if that was the case, of Spring would have been played once and that was it. Right. You know, people, like you have to know, you have to invest. So I'm committed to investing and in making sure that we are um, teaching our, our audiences about new great music. We're exposing our, artists, our, our audiences to new artists and, um, uh, and just, you know, investing in the future. So that's why I'm so excited that Marcus is a part of this program for three years. And then we have Jonathan Bingham and Ronaldo Moya for the next three years, because we're in it for the long haul uh, to invest in our art.
0: Yeah, that sounds like some uh, radical thought from a person in a position like yours, don't pay so much attention to the ticket sales or don't center the ticket sales. When you talk about programming, I I, I love to hear it. that that to me feels like change, but you're, you're pushing on something that um, I think is important, a really important point, the programming toward um, diversifying an audience is one thing, but you're right, the musicians who play the music play a huge role in that. Now, as we know, it's different getting a black guest artist on stage than you know making the core of your orchestra look more diverse. How do you uh, engage that part of the conversation? I know we have union rules and you know audition uh, re- re- requirements. So I wonder if you could talk about how you plan on at least thinking about diversifying the orchestra itself toward diversifying the audience.
4: Yes. So I think. Um... We have a unique, you know, position because we're not in a typical structure of a of another organization in terms of like tenure and everything like that. We, our group, it's it's more inclusive, so we can get right out and go to the great schools. We can go to Howard, you know, we can we can go to HBCUs, we can go to Juilliard and and start just you know recruiting great musicians. We obviously have a huge community of musicians um, uh, in Chicago to pull from, so it's very simple to to be a part of our organization if you're a great player you know we're we're very welcoming and uh the process is is pretty inclusive already but i do have plans in the future to make it more accessible because when i lived here i wasn't incredibly familiar with the philharmonic you know i just didn't have the exposure to it and now i want to make sure that other young black musicians other You know, BIPOC musicians are aware of our organization and that they have the ability to perform with us. Uh, Marcus mentioned Adrian Dunn. Uh, Adrian is a you know great collaborator. We had an amazing time uh, on a performance with him this past June. I I think also collaborating with other diverse organizations with other Black artists uh, is important to make let people know like, hey, like we are committed to, to to really creating the space. So yeah. uh, it's a it's a lot of things and it's a long-term plan, but um, I'm very excited for the future for us.
0: Yeah, Marcus, I'm, I'm going to uh, turn back to you. So let's say, and, and again, as we're thinking about the way orchestras look, the identity and experiences within an orchestra, let's say, um, you know, you put uh, Glory on the music stand uh, of an orchestra, the Black folks, you know, we're immediately going to be able to draw some uh, proximity just from the title before we hear anything maybe in your future compositions you title something praise break or I don't know so there are certain cultural things that are attached there and also opportunities to teach folks in the orchestra or in those ensembles that may not have that uh, direct line of of understanding Do do you see that as um I hate to use the word burdensome, but it, it seems like you know artists, composers, music creators just want to create the music and then let it happen. But it seems like there's a lot of teaching that you have to do on your side of the on the on your side of the work as well. Considering you know how diverse orchestras look, and you know if I may say how um, black folks are still the minority in those yeah. in those groups. You know how do, how do you approach that part of it?
2: Uh, so, you know, I'm still learning, I'm still evolving and I go through phases like a few years ago, I got into this, like, I don't know, angry twenties phase where I was just like, (laughs) I ain't explaining nothing to nobody It's like, y'all want to play my, you figure it out. And it, it just on that part, I just, I got, I got exhausted. I got exhausted from like explaining my humanity. To to white organizations or to white folks or like sometimes it's not. In, in certain situations, there are certain people who sometimes don't really even want to understand your thing. And then if you if you talk how I talk and you look how I look, they automatically assume that you that you don't know what you're talking about.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: On top of that, or like or, or another one I get a lot is like, and um, and me and Adrian have talked about this at length. But another one I get a lot is like they think it just kind of like, God just speaks through me. And there's just this like, it's just this intuitive thing. Like, oh, you just have like black folks just have this intuitive melodic voice and all this. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, I do. But like, but I'm also like a master at my craft and all these things. So I, I got real irritated a few years ago and I was just like, I stopped writing program notes and mm-hmm. was just like, it is what it is. It, it, like, it, uh, Basically I just kept saying, if you know, you know. You know what I mean? Because, like you said, it's like the people I was writing for know, and but but all that going to said is like I, I've I've grown some in the last year and um and met some some great allies, and make and met some some people who there are more people. I guess I'm I'm choosing now to focus on the people who do want to understand and who yeah. do approach it from a place of love, and I think that my it's better for my music and all these things, but also for my mental health. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, oh yeah. So so now I'm trying to get better at that about like thinking about ways to talk about these things, but like you said, not, um, not taking on the a burden of it or not feeling like I have to, or like basing any of my value on whether or not, uh, people outside our culture a, a, appreciate it, but still it's like, um, for those who really do come from a genuine place and love it and, and want to understand, I'm I'm working on. Uh, getting better and, and and clearer, I guess, at like at giving that cultural context and, and, and talking about what these things mean to us. Because at the core, um, we are talking about very specific Black experiences, but like a, a lot of our things are human experiences that other people can understand. Um, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That
0: word fatigue is, is yeah, resonating with me. <laughs> you know, uh, Terrell, in, in the rooms you've been in, I'm sure that at some point you have felt that sort of fatigue as well on the administrative side of things. How do you deal with that? fatigue, of feeling like um, you always have to teach, or, you know, I know we always have the conversation of being the representative, but sometimes when you're the only one or one of the few Black folks in the room, there are things that you just have to explain, right? Is, is that not a part of it? It,
4: it, is, it is a part of, um, it's, a, it's a burden, you know, we have. Um, I, I think it's important to have your your personal board of directors you know, we all got to like, this is like our community, your friends, Mm -hmm. your family, you know, those people that you can have around you. And, um, during those, those, those times when you are feeling fatigued, you know, if you have the people you're sharing your goals with and, um, and they know what your, what your passion and your mission is. And sometimes if you think you're getting off track, you got to check in with your personal board, you know, and and you gotta, you gotta get, I, I have, you know, my core group of friends that, we talk about things. I mean, um, these these last two years have been a roller coaster. I don't know how to put it, but yeah. so <laughs> that, that's the word I'll use. And uh, I think having that 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 core group of of trusted friends and family to to just you know talk to people that you know sh- are are this experience with you can understand. I think it's so important. And um, you got to make sure you have time to, for yourself. You know, to to recharge. So it's important to also, at times, um, just to, to check in and make sure that you're doing all right and that you know the mission. And sometimes it's not always. We, sometimes we have to. like This is me personally, and I'm not saying for everybody. but Sometimes yeah. it's important to, to take a step back and be and, and say, like, is this right for me? To, if if to, to educate this person at this moment, should I take a step back and make sure that I'm going to put it in the right way? That's respectful. Uh, and that we can continue to communicate together and get to whatever you know this project done we need to do or whatever um that we're communicating in a good way so i that's a that's a tough one to say but i'll I'll go back to the it's your personal board i think you got to have the right people around you um especially as you move through your career um because marcus i think what you're saying is so important like if you're feeling fatigued and And you don't have those right people around you, and you're always trying to educate people, I think it can be just really trying to your creative process or to any process, any field, really.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, to all of that, there come those moments, especially on the administrative side of the arts, of dissonance that Uh, begets change. So, you know, what I'm thinking about right now, I I wear locks, you wear locks. Once upon a time, this hair was unprofessional, right? And someone had to go and challenge that and maybe make things uncomfortable and and maybe even risk their own position in these spaces to to make that change. What, What are your words to, you know, folks uh, climbing a, a similar path uh, as you on the administrative side of things when it comes to actually challenge and uh having the bravery to do something that you know you may not think will maintain your position in those spaces.
4: Oh, oh. Yeah, that's that's your superpower. <laughs> Challenging that's your superpower. You know, you can't don't, don't don't veer off track. Sometimes it's okay to pull over for a moment, take a pit
3: stop, but don't sure. you know. Don't,
4: don't veer off. Don't Hey, you know, my, my locks are still here. Um I, I, you, you, you have to be your yourself. You have to be your authentic self. And so my words of encouragement are just that if if someone feels that they're looking for a position and they have something about them, their locks, their tattoos or whatever, yeah. and they think that's not. That's going to prevent them from getting the job they want, then it's that's not the right job. That's not the right culture. If if those type of things, if it's not your talent, your skills, what you bring, you know, all of your, your experience, if those things are overlooked and people are basing things off of your appearance or, or whatever, then it's that's not the right, that's not the right job. And there's some, there's something much better where you can be your authentic self. And and um, so my words of advice are. I, those type of things we've all thought it I trust me I've thought it before like if I, if I go into this interview and they you know is that, is that going to be an issue but I just think like hey if that's an issue that I, I don't need to be here anyway yeah um, so I really just you got to be your authentic self and yeah. if Going into a space that people can't accept that, and it's really that's not the right space, not the right culture. Yeah. And, but if you are in the right space, sorry, I picked up my baton because yeah, oh, so you're oh, ready. Oh, it's getting <laughs> real now. All right. Sometimes I got to fidget. If you are in the right space and you have individuals in that space that are you know toxic to the culture, it is important just to 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 speak up. It yep. is important, and um, and you can't have a fear of like facing you know retaliation it's important to tell people if if they're not being inclusive in a space they're not being welcoming and it's because it's probably you're not the only one who's probably feeling that way right uh, so I, I think that is also very important to to make clear too
0: yeah, I have, I have one more question that I wanted to throw out to the both of you. And actually, Terrell, it's interesting that uh, you brought up Titus Underwood's name because he's actually uh, going to be one of the topics of discussion as we uh, wrap up this opus of uh, the podcast, specifically when it comes to some of the drama he was dealing with um, down at the Nashville Symphony. So, you know. The class, as we've seen from uh, that news and, and otherwise, the classical music, white lash, as I call it, is very real. It's not just cute and safe not as cute and safe as it was, you know, a few years ago, five, 10 years ago, to talk about diversifying classical music spaces, because as we've seen actual impact and actual change, we've seen folks challenging that change and, and trying to flip the script on Black folks and other folks trying to, you know, promote equity in, in, uh, in, in classical spaces. So, you know, to all of that, I'll, I'll start with you, uh, Marcus. Do we have, from your perspective, a harder road ahead of us than we've seen so far, and and how how are you gonna, you know, gird your loins, so to speak, in preparation for the challenges that we have to come that we're just beginning to see manifest in our work, or as or as a reaction to our work.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about? Uh... About specifically about the the Titus thing and, and what you what you mean by that in case I miss well, any well,
0: details. Well, sure, and 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 I'll you know I'll I'll, I'll speak generally. You know, we've okay. seen articles uh, come out about how uh, so-called woke culture is taking over classical yeah. spaces, and so so basically that that discourse I, I think is really beginning to to move to the to the front. How how do you plan on uh, facing or engaging or combating that as you move forward in your career?
2: Um. Just being unapologetically me unapologetically black talking that talk, making great black art with great- great black artists uh and letting people cry about it, man I don't know you like, <laughs> <He laughs> like said be I, mad and
0: stay mad, yeah be mad <laughs> stay
2: mad die mad bro i don't I don't care um i I don't know i everything you're saying is spot on like like people it is less or it is like more angry and more outward like I said I just got like this weird review and it was like very much an attack on me and uh you know called my work um you know how to use the coded language like uh like street smart sure or, or something <laughs> like this and it was like it was like uh, can you say that but it, it just uh I don't know man it just not everyone I, I do recognize the seriousness of it and I do recognize that not everyone like some people's positions um i'm I'm in a position where I can be like cry about it and and i'm it's not gonna affect like the way I eat or the way I move through these mm-hmm. things, and I recognize that that some people have it tougher than that um and i I would love to hear how i can i can I can help the cause for those people more, but for my position, it's like cry about it man like i like like. I feel like, um, even like in, in 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 what you do, it's like like you know I'm big on giving people their flowers, and and I feel like not many people um, like two parts. Like one can talk about the art the way you talk about it, but two is like talk about black art with like the reverence and love and respect that you talk about black music with, and 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 I think the uh, the point is I think you're one of the the rare people where it's like. Um, the game needs you a lot more than you need the game in my sure. opinion you know what i mean and and sure. i think there's a lot of black artists like that man where it's like i, th- I think and, and, and i think that applies to black art as a whole too I right this is the point i'm saying is like this game needs us a lot more than we need this game man we've been doing fine without it for a long time but hey but you but you're lucky we, we decided that hey we want this too we want to make this cool the way we made everything else in american history cool you know what i mean yeah that's my thoughts
0: yeah yeah same question to you terrell well first of all do you see the road ahead being rougher than the road behind us considering the the as i what i describe as white lash coming to the front in in response to dei initiatives in classical spaces and how you plan on dealing with that on your side of the of the of the field moving forward
4: it's it's amazing so well, I'm going to answer your question with a, with a question to you, too, though. Sure. <laughs> um, it was so it's amazing because it was always here. Right.
3: Mm-hmm. But
4: now because we like, you know, we've all experienced these things, but in a way, I'm, I'm happy that everyone knows it now because it was it was it was tough, you know, moving through spaces. Um, you know, my, my main instrument is clarinet and being only by person in a space playing, playing the clarinet at times. And when things would happen, people were like, did you see that? Did you notice that? And people be like, no, no, that's just, you know, in your head. But now, you know, those experiences, you look back and it's like, man, that was really not right. Yeah. And the response now, like this, this very positive and also at, at times very negative response, um, I think it just helped to not be gaslighted anymore. To know, like, oh, this my 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 feelings were really relevant. And My experience is really relevant, and now I can do everything in my power to make sure that um, someone coming from behind me, you know, I'm leaving doors open behind myself for other people to come through. And I'm aware of um, I've you know firsthand uh, experienced many of these things in, in terms of playing in this field. And I've experienced the, the wonderful things about playing in this field. And I, I have a full understanding of both. And um, so my, my question back to you is, although it is, it is, you know, there has been this response, this negative response, doesn't it feel good to, to, to know that we were right? That, <laughs> that, you know, like when we said to the personnel manager or whatever, like this person was being, you know, kind of disrespectful and people kind of, blew it off I, I, for some reason this might be me just i don't know being i don't, kind of masticate being a <laughs> about it, but it, it it's it is very helpful just knowing that people can be overt about it now and you really see these people are being allies we have allies now and we know who those allies are and we know like hey maybe we don't want to take a donation from this person right and so i'm kind of i kind of feel that it's just having this transparency now um, is in a way a positive because we really know who we need to align ourselves with we know who we need to be collaborating with now we know that people that this might be not the best people to align ourselves with and maybe for our organizations to not accept donations from um if they're like- not
2: yep oh i'm sorry i thought you were finished
3: no,
4: <laughs> never. You always got to cut me off. I go. I'll go on forever. But <laughs> you put me on a podcast, Gary. I'm going to go on forever. But no, I just think. I just think. Really, it's it's about now. We know um, people who might not be. EDI is essential. It's essential. So um, if there are people who are pushing back, they have
2: to ask themselves why are they pushing back, and we have to push ourselves forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Final final word, Marcus.
2: Oh no, I was just going to say. I feel like he 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 like he snuck it in, but he like touched on like the key, the key of a lot of this, of, of, like one of these things for navigating this is you talking about like having the ability to be, be in a position to where you could like turn down donations or, and, and you know, and as far as like an individual status is, is like, um, it, and it's super easier said than done, but it, it's to like put yourself in, in a, a position a lot of times financially where it's like, I know A, if if this person at this gig talks to me crazy or all it takes is one wrong word, I'm out. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, and my bills are paid, I, you know, um, I, I think, and again, it's super easier said than done, but I think that independence is, is, is what he kind of touched on at the end of that. I think that's that's really important for us as we as we try to move through these things. So that, cause that's always been the power in, in a lot of these spaces is cause these institutions have the money. Um, so yeah, it's, it's easier said than done, but I feel like that's like a major key that he kind of like snuck in there. It, you know, it, I just want to make sure people caught that. Don't sweat the
4: technique. Don't sweat the
1: technique.
0: Another classic <laughs> composition there, an American classic, a little Eric B and Rock don't sweat the technique. Of course, I'm putting that in because in the conversation, uh, Marcus brought up the idea of bartok pizzicatos. You know, the idea of doing a pits so hard that the string kind of rattles, and how he is able to uh, you know, tell folks that's the sound he's looking for without using that vocabulary or with you know, using that vocabulary, how it goes both ways. Mm. And the first thing I thought of was the bass line there and uh, Don't Sweat the Technique, some, uh, some great music there. Before we get into the final movement, one thing I wanted to ask you that we got into in the discussion, you know, I asked, I, I, I ended with, do we have a harder road ahead of us? Considering what we've seen with the backlash to all of this work in classical spaces, the way that these comment sections look, the, the you know, all of the silence from so many uh, arts organizations. So, you know, do, what, what do you think about that? When we talk about equity in classical spaces, Western classical spaces, do you think we have yet to see the hard part, the actual Rocky Road?
1: Yeah, let me put it this way. Um, it's harder than I thought it was going to be. Mm. How about that? Yeah,
0: yeah, and it can be demoralizing, but yes, it is. But at the same time, and it's messy. I'm and... affirmed because I'm like, okay, I'm doing something. You know, th- th- this is work that can be done. This is a, a not a blank slate. I don't mean to say that, but just a, a, a space that needs some attention, some some love and care, and. I can provide that. So that's something that, you know, uh, uh, affirms me and, and excites me about the work. So the work has to be done in many different ways. You know, we're, we're media people here. You have Marcus, who's a composer, you have Terrell who's in the building at the tables and we need all of, you know, all of that, everyone, wherever they are doing that work and pushing forward so that we can make some progress uh, like they have been seeing with the Chicago Philharmonic. So a huge shout out and thank you to both Terrell and Marcus for coming on. I'll have, uh, links to uh all of their things in the description of this well to get us into the triloquy with our our trill i wanted to you know be accountable i've been telling the people i've been practicing so i'm, I'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna share so uh, at the end of october i'm playing the rossini concerto along with some uh transcribed william grant still songs but that rossini it's it's giving me <laughs> <laughs> I, I am exercising oh, the, yeah? the, the fingers are getting an exercise anyway so there's a nice trill at the end of the solo exposition of the first movement of the Rossini Concerto so here's, here's a little clip from my practice session ending with that trill to get us into the fourth movement there at the end of that it's funny you know i'm i'm old enough now to feel the out of shapeness so <laughs> i was you know, gonna ask you how, your, how I, your
1: lungs were holding up i
0: mean more than the lungs it's it's my chops it's mm. my face that mm. is like oh my gosh after 20 minutes of playing you know it, it used to be i could i could play a two three hour concert and be fine you know but but the the old age is setting in so listen listen kids if you're at home Don't stop practicing now (laughs) (laughs) because even after six months or a year, you know, it's almost like rebuilding the boat. But I'm excited. I'm excited to uh, get back in. I'm excited to be able to do what the orchestra wants as far as getting, uh, you know, some of the so-called traditional repertoire out there alongside bringing myself and my aesthetic and my uh, opinion on the genre but also the Rossini Bassoon Concerto as few pieces the bassoon has it's one of the ones that a lot of folks don't know and it gets sort of overlooked so I wanted to at least if I had to dig into the uh, Western European canon to have something that folks don't hear every day it's not mm, the Mozart mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. not one of the Weber's it's not the Hummel it's the Rossini so looking forward to that and I'm, I need I might I might need a bassoonist or two to <laughs> listen to me and, and, and tell me what I'm not hearing because it's <laughs> but <laughs> (laughs) it's and I don't say it with sorrow I say it with excitement it's good to it feels good to rebuild the Mm. the ship Mm -hmm. in that way I'm I'm enjoying the exercise I'm getting All right. so uh, uh, we're here in the fourth movement the the sort of main event (laughs) for this week's triloquy this week's final movement comes from freebeacon.com the headline is how racial anxiety conquered an orchestra and crushed a career all right long story short this article is in response to a man getting fired from the Nashville Symphony after harassing our friend, the great Titus Underwood. Okay, so back when all of this was going down, when he won his audition, even before that, when he first started subbing in with the Nashville Symphony, he complained about. Uh, you know, some, some racial harassment coming from members of the orchestra and from the, the wind section. The first time he was supposed to be on Triloquy, actually, we recorded an interview, and he asked me to pull it and not publish it because things were getting so hot. He had restraining orders. There Did was you, police
1: protection. This was a this was a serious issue. I was going to ask you if that was the, the incident in question around that whole thing, but didn't you also say that he had to leave his home for he had a month to, or I two? forgot about that. He had to leave his home for a
0: little while because the man was stalk, uh, stalking him. And he ended up, this clarinet player, ended up getting fired from the orchestra. And this article is sort of making a martyr... Out of him, I'll, I'll read a little bit of it. Um, I'll start from the from the top here. It says most people haven't heard of James Zimmerman, but most have heard him a decorated musician with a long string of acoustic accolades. Zimmerman has made the sound of his clarinet difficult to avoid. Zimmerman was the principal clarinetist of the Nashville Symphony for more than a decade. That is until the orchestra fired him last February over accusations of racial racial harassment to hear his accusers tell it Zimmerman. Zimmer- Had insulted, intimidated, and even stalked his black colleagues, going as far as to menacingly drive by their homes. I'll I'll let y'all read the rest of that, but basically, this article is trying to make Titus sound like he's crazy, trying to gaslight him. One of the things that I pulled from this that I think is really significant that you'll see as you take a closer look of uh, at this: the accused James Zimmerman had allies. And accomplices in the whole thing. The article speaks to how members of the wind section were uh, played a role in trying to diminish Titus's contributions to the orchestra, saying that he had tuning issues. There are people who were uh, consulted in writing this article, talking about how they disagree with the firing of James Zimmerman, and he wasn't a racist, and and X, Y, and Z. So you know, my 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 thing is Scott. What are we fighting for? You know, articles like this and stories like this just bring me to what are we fighting for? Because it's one thing for an orchestra to get rid of a racist member who is harassing a black player, especially considering how few there are in the field, Titus being the only one in that orchestra, the only tenured member anyway in that orchestra. Um, but there, it it's so insidious that there are people who are just... In the shadows, supporting the mess, supporting the racism, they aren't going to do it enough to get themselves outed and fired like James Zimmerman did. But they are right there, and those are Titus's colleagues. What sort of work environment is that? Is 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 that is this our king? Is that what we're fighting for? You know, a spot in an orchestra where we just have to sit around and try to play the best we can with white people who want to see us get kicked right out of the door mm-hmm. because that's what it is in this situation and that's what's plainly
1: outlined in this article i mean what, what what were some of your takeaways from reading this i went and i poked around the website just to see what else was in what is it the washington free beacon mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's funded by a billionaire conservative so um i think that that partially shaped the narrative as of you course, see it of course they're you know trying to make titus sound like he's crazy and mm-hmm. you know the gentleman uh, in question here zimmerman is it um wasn't stalking he was thinking about buying a house in the area and then he was really cutting through to avoid traffic was another thing um they'll come I, up with anything I, that that's that's kind of that's kind of what i was getting to because i I had to read this four times mm-hmm. to because it's, it reads like a like the script of a of a Who It or something. Yeah. You know, some sort of a detective show. Yeah. And I still haven't absorbed all of the the ins and outs of this. And Titus, you
0: know, is someone who I have known for over a decade now. We've, right. we've played together in Los Angeles. We've performed together with Gateways and Sphinx. We're always in the mix. You know, you have met Titus. And what, what I want to get from you, when it comes to Titus's forwardness, when it comes to black pride, equity, black power, you can't hide it, right? I mean, when, when, when you meet him and when you spend enough time with him, you understand that that is a part of of who he is. I mean that, but that's from my perspective. Do Do you get that from him after having met him a, a couple times? Titus is very
1: magnetic. Yeah, yes, he's, yeah. he's uh, he'll he'll draw you in, and uh, the way that he speaks, you know, I'm I I appreciated just being able to sit and listen to him go off for a while at the Sphinx Conference. You know, and there are people I'm sure in
0: this orchestra in the Nashville Symphony and even beyond who will take Titus's aura you know that you you the the whole you're not gonna fuck with titus aura of it all and say oh well, we really don't need that energy the uh, they'll use the word political we don't we don't want this to be political and and all of that thing this is this is all about the music but my thing is how can it be only about the music if you aren't affirming the people in that group
1: is that wrong
0: you know <laughs> how can you be a, a cohesive wind section, much less a cohesive orchestra, if the people behind those instruments, especially the marginalized people like Titus, if they aren't being affirmed. So I'm sorry, and I checked in with Titus, and and he's doing okay. But it's something how even being in existence. It's not like Titus uh, uh, drummed up a protest or a riot or something outside of Orchestra Hall. He took an audition went through all of the bullshit of the audition process that is also laid out in here, you right. know, how you can be the last man or the last woman standing I and still, still not maybe not get even a trial, much less the job. So that's that's laid out here. But, you know, adding on to that, just the fact that he he showed up, he did all of his practicing, he went to music school, landed of this job, became the first black principal oboist in a, in a major American symphony orchestra. Just existing in this space was enough to drum up all of this drama, and you have uh, writers like this, and and publications like this, trying to flip it and say that. The, the, the system is wrong let me let me read the the final because the, <laughs> the the final bits of this article are are is really what's crazy um it says here Zimmerman agrees with his colleagues that he was railroaded but he also agrees with the orchestra about one point at the end of the day underwood was the real victim of the whole saga i get to walk away with integrity says Zimmerman How? who told the free beacon he regrets sending this email but underwood quote has his whole career built on a house of cards i feel sorry for him actually james zimmerman i feel sorry for you because you are around here acting like oh i was just doing this and i was doing that and you're the one and you're the one fired okay and i'm very sensitive scott about stories about job terminations for obvious reasons because the story that happened and as it as told by the press will never be the actual story but i am confident both in my relationship with titus a and b my relationship with the issue of orchestras you know i'm not just speaking with a complete outside perspective i've been right. in those rooms i've been right. on those stages i've taken the auditions so i can affirm and understand what it's like to be a black man in those spaces and then to be lucky enough to win one of these jobs and and then to to have to put up with all of that we have to we we, we have to just acknowledge, as I was saying with the border stuff, what it is, it is just flat out racism. There are people from the orchestra quoted in this article saying, oh, well, there's no way that James Zimmerman is a racist and all of that stuff. White folks, I have something to tell y'all. You are not qualified to say what is and what isn't racist because you haven't spent your life racialized. You You can recognize racism when it looks like a white hood or when it looks like the N word, but you can't recognize it when it looks like what we're dealing with here. And then when you have people with power and money, With that fucked up perspective, it's flipped around to where James Zimmerman is the victim. And we're supposed to be sorry for Titus because his
1: career is built on a house of cards. Get out of here. I'm done. There's too many bizarro world things going on in this art. I don't even know if I want to go back and look at it again. Because even right right in the beginning, uh, evidently Zimmerman approached Titus and said, Hey, there's an N-word in this song that I want to cover. Can I do it? What? Uh, so okay. So what, why? Why ask? Why ask Titus? We know no, why. No, but here's you need to find a new song. Is the thing period? But okay. But, but why is that? What does that add to the story? D- to to what happened? What does that tidbit add to?
0: What they think it adds is you see how reasonable James Zimmerman was. I mean, he okay. even went and okay. asked for permission and da da da. But you're right. It's like the whole represent the representative part of it is problematic. But also, just find a new song. I hope that James Zimmerman didn't actually say the N word to Titus said that he did because. If it was me, and especially where I am in my life and my career right now, James Zimmerman will be having to find a set of teeth so he could play that clarinet. Cause you know you put your uh, teeth on the top of the right. mouthpiece. The you I'm know sure. he'd he'd have a problem playing that damn clarinet when you're done with me. And the thing is, Titus is probably more reasonable than I am in, in that regard. But the more of us that fill up those spaces, the more the the more of uh, <laughs> <laughs> the The more of uh, folks getting dealt with, we're going to see, because for too long the, it, it has been one of those protected spaces where all of this nonsense can happen. the The big point, you know, as as I'm closing up here, the the big point that I want to make is that we all, you know, to the allies, accomplices, the uh, uh, potential accomplices, and especially the people of color, I think we need to just take the time and back up from the picture and say, is this what we want? Is this what we're fighting for? Because James Zimmerman was not alone in this orchestra. There are folks cited in this article, and I'm sure there are other people who are completely silent and who haven't said anything, who would love to see Titus kicked out the door and who felt like James Zimmerman and uh, his racism, There was nothing wrong with that so what are we going to do about the space you know, folks talk about folks love to talk about changing things from the inside okay you have to actually change things from the inside being a good employee being a good member of these all white or predominantly white systems is not changing anything and it's not being on the right side of the work. If you are falling well into the wavelengths of the white supremacist culture of classical music spaces, you're on the wrong side of the battle. You're on the wrong team. And that's just that. Obviously Titus found some stuff that was problematic and dealt with it. And someone had to be dismissed for it. Okay. But there, are, as I've, as I've been saying, there's so many more people who have remained silent and quiet and and they're going to have to be, be dealt with. So I think, think our weapon against that is standing in our truth not hiding behind anything and really speaking up when we see these racist things happening because really it should have been one of the tenured members of the orchestra talking about these things and bringing it to hr titus should not have had to be at the front uh, of this and bearing the brunt of this it should have been one of those so-called good white people doing that but where were they anyway so go check out that article <laughs> I'll have that posted in the description. Love and light and uh, encouragements to Titus. I hope you have many successful seasons with the Nashville Symphony. I hope that you have the courage to continue to speak up and to even move on if you have to. And I'm going to say that part. I, 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 I want there to be more black people in these orchestras because there are black people who want to be in them and they deserve to be in them if that's what they want you know that is true and what is also true is that we don't have to deal with this we don't have to deal with all of this violence to express ourselves musically and artistically and we have to stop pretending like this is the only way especially when we see stories like these come out so mm. that that's that uh, final thing before we say goodbye For this week, as I alluded to in the beginning, if you're on Facebook, go uh, like and follow the Triloquy Facebook page. So every week, you know, you know, from all of the contributions and things, it all goes back into Triloquy. I spend about 250, sometimes some months, $300 on um, promotion of Triloquy. That's uh that's either underwriting on other podcasts or other YouTube channels, you know, getting them to shout out Triloquy, all this stuff. Wow. Uh, but one of the more consistent ones was running ads on Facebook. Um, for the past three weeks now, Facebook has been flagging Triloquies posts and uh, taking them down and not allowing them to fly because Triloquy um, allegedly Speaks to a special interest group, and it is against their policies <laughs> to to promote special interest. So, I mean, if if the special interest is is racial equity and justice in in the classical music space, I mean,
3: is that wrong? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hashtag delete
1: Facebook. I know. Hashtag delete Facebook.
0: Yeah, I, I, I may have to I, I may have to get there. But I did
1: mine years ago, and it has been so great. But at the same so
0: time, great. that is a huge point of discovery for so many people. You know, they're they're. I would probably say there are 500 people, you know, who have jumped on to Triloquy just from there when I'm looking at sure. the, the analytics from week to week from the advertisement. So it's it's a it's a considerable thing, but it's just not fair the way that they, they pigeonhole those of us who are trying to make change into politics or special interests or whatever, just just because I'm using phrases like white supremacy.
1: Will Facebook even let you post a link to the show? They'll let me post a link to the
0: show. I, they they haven't blocked me that hard, but uh-huh. all of my, none of my advertisements go through. So I'm hoping that if I get uh, some more energy and some more movement on the Facebook page, that might shift something. So be mm. be a be. A, be a, an ally and a, and a a potential accomplice to the work that we're doing here by, by doing that. If, if you're on Facebook, I understand that a lot of people have thrown that to the side. I get that. And I affirm that I also affirm that we just can't let these spaces be problematic. And, and if there is a space, uh, especially a social media space like Facebook, that isn't allowing certain things, certain narratives, I just can't let that be. I'm going to continue to push week after week on that front and on every front. So, um, you know, continue to support and continue to help because this is a real battle that we're facing and and one that I think we can win. I hope y'all, uh, again, I'll I'll, 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 sh- I'll shout out the masks and the vaccines because that is still the thing. Do everything you can to stay safe, especially as you're traveling. I'm gonna have three masks on on this plane I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna have my earbuds so no one even talk. Don't even look at me <laughs> spreading your, your particles, okay? So <laughs> stay safe out there, y'all, and uh we'll see you next week.